Sorry. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. The Apostle Paul said, I want you to know this, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. For men will be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, and unholy, without natural affection, truce-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fears, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. They resist the truth. They're men of corrupt minds and reprobate concerning the faith. Welcome to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chrismeyer. Today we look at the spirit of the last days. The spirit of the last days. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy about. Know this, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Those are the things that he writes about. In this particular passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, notice that they're not about wars and rumors of wars. They're not about those kinds of things at all. They're about the spirit of the last days. And that may be the most important thing for us to know, after all, the spirit of the last days. And so I welcome you to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chrismeyer. It's conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction talk that transforms. And it's very possible that today, well, there might be an element of conviction that comes as we talk about this because, in fact, we are in the last days. You say, well, how do you know we're in the last days? Tell me about the last days. Well, the last days began on the day of Pentecost. Right after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, 50 days later, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and as the disciples poured out of the room where they were waiting, having been baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire, they came out and people said, what is this? What's going on here? And Peter extemporaneously stood up, and said, men and brethren, this is what's going on. This is what the prophet, the prophet Joel spoke of, that in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your young men shall see vision, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my handmaidens will I pour out my spirit in those days. Mm. So they began 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, In fact, if you were to actually measure the 2,000 years, it might actually come from the year, say, 30 A.D. You see, Jesus was apparently born somewhere around 4 B.C., and then he ministered. He lived for 30 years, but he ministered for three years. Then he was crucified 
rose again, and 50 days later, the Holy Spirit was poured out on his disciples, the launching of the church, and that occurred somewhere around 30 A.D. If you were to take 2,000 years from 30 A.D., where would you end up? Well, you'd end up at, well, 2030. 2030. What is it about 2030 that should get our attention? Well, that's exactly the time when the Great Reset is supposed to be completed. That's the time when the entire New World Order is supposed to have been fully implemented. That's the time in which the UN's Agenda 2030 is supposed to be completed. Hmm. Do you think it might indicate something about us being in the end of the age, in the last days, or the final stages of the last days? And so the so-called period of the last days is actually divided. First of all, there's the broader period of the last days that began on the day of Pentecost. Then there is a further point down the road, a much narrower period of time, referred to as the latter days, the latter days of the last days. We know that the book of Ezekiel speaks of that in Ezekiel 38 and 39 concerning a confederation of nations that would attack Israel secretly to take a spoil in the latter time or the latter days. And then there's another period that's even shorter yet at the end of the latter days, which is a period called the day of the Lord. And that is the point where God pours out his wrath on the children of disobedience. But until then, there is this period, however long it is, much shorter than the last days, but contained in the last days called the latter days. And we're in that period. I'm convinced that we're in that period, and I suspect that you are as well. Therefore, when the Apostle Paul talks about the last days perilous times, oh, we have to realize What he's talking about has come to a head in our time. So when we talk about the spirit of the last days, what we're really talking about is the spirit of the latter days of the last days, our time. So let's take a look again at what the Apostle Paul said about the spirit of this latter period. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, uh, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Doesn't that sound like a pretty good distilled description of where we are today, not only in America, but all over the world? Indeed. It would be tough to distill a description of where we are more accurately than that. So we want to take a look at that as we continue on in the program today. Again, I welcome you to Viewpoint. 
Viewpoint always determines destiny. There are no neutral viewpoints. I know we say that regularly, but I want you to be aware of that. There are no neutral viewpoints. And as we talk today about our times, we're going to see that the viewpoints of our times, well, we describe them in various terms other than what the Apostle Paul described, but we actually are in a time that fits almost identically, congruently upon the description the Apostle Paul gave of our time. So I hope you'll hang in there, friends, because what we're going to be talking about here today has tremendous implications and application for you, for me, for our families, for our congregations, my pastor friends, for our world. And so here we go. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. The balance of our program here today on Viewpoint, we're taking a look at some of the, shall we say, social-isms of our time, the things that define our relationships with one another and also define our relationship with God, the spiritual connection or description of the last days. And it involves isms. It involves beliefs that are framed around, oftentimes around a nugget of truth, but actually they are expanded then to embrace whole realms of approach, of thinking, of identity, and of deception themselves. And they end in perversions and departures from the original truth. Sometimes these departures are subtle, but oftentimes they're very dramatic. But unfortunately, they are always seductive. The departures from truth are seductive precisely because there is within them and within us a certain unspoken will, unfortunately, to be deceived. So as we look at the underlying philosophy of life uh, that is uh, being portrayed and perpetrated as reality in our times, these latter days, it's going to be apparent that there is a sufficient nugget of truth in each to draw the unsuspecting into their welcoming arms. So so great is the reach of these isms that they have infiltrated, unfortunately, the entire earth, including the realms of evangelical Christianity and Jewish life as well. And they're all rooted, all of these social isms are rooted in our outlook on the world. An outlook that places man at the center of the universe. Therefore, God is, at very best, kind of outside or parenthetical to the driving forth of of these social isms, and is therefore 
either irrelevant or irreverently rejected. And these isms all purport to provide answers to the social needs of human beings, forming an environment for a variety of religions or spiritual viewpoints that reject either in whole or in part, either in whole or in part, the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was once delivered to the saints. So these social isms include communism, socialism, fascism, Freudianism, emotionalism rooted in psychology, feminism, hedonism, and humanism. But it's humanism that undergirds all of them. And we're not going to be talking about communism here today. We're not going to be talking about socialism. We're not going to be talking about fascism because that leads us into political thinking. No, what we're talking about here today is the spiritual characteristics of the last days, of the perilous times of the last days. Why are they perilous? Well, one reason why they're perilous is because these isms are so seductive that they draw the fleshly mind and heart into them like a magnet. So let's take a look at humanism. We've all heard about people people talking for years and decades about humanism. But what is it? What is humanism? How can we understand it? Well, at the very root, it's a God substitute. Humanism is a God substitute. In what way? Well, it's a way of thinking about man, human beings, and our place in the earth. Humanists, whether they're religious or secular, emphasize this present life rather than hereafter. So man becomes the center of the humanist universe. Have you ever heard of the preaching, even the books, your best life now? That's the spirit of humanism. Your best life now. It's about this present life primarily rather than eternity or the hereafter. So it's a shift of the spirit from the hope of eternal salvation to the hope of temporal happiness. Now, it's even more serious than that. Far more serious than that. It's about man becoming God. Now, it's easy to say those words, and we can say, yeah, I I think you're probably right. Oh, but it's much deeper than that, friends. It actually goes to the very essence, the very essence of where we are right now, even in terms of a messianic expectation. I know that may sound strange, but it's actually true. Because the messianic expectation of our time, except for the Christian faith, inevitably comes back to man becoming the center of it all. Not God, but man. In fact, so much so that man himself becomes his own Messiah. So the fact that man is the center of the religious humanist worldview creates an immediate tension, as you can see, with the revealed word of God. So 
You remember the words of Jesus, the great commandment. The overarching import is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then issuing out of that great commandment was an expression of it to love your neighbors yourself. But what if I subtly drift or even affirmatively shift, choosing to love man over love of God? Then I'm going to find myself not only at variance from God's truth, but actually becoming an unwitting participant in the tide of unintended consequences that flow from every deception. And what is that? Man becoming his own God. Now, most people think of humanists as uh, atheists. However, many humanists are not religiously oriented, they're humanists, they rather embrace humanism as an alternative, uh, an alternate to a creator God. But not all humanists seem to be against God or atheistic. For instance, Julian Huxley, Huxley, the first director of UNESCO, stated, we must develop a world religion of evolutionary humanism. A world religion of evolutionary humanism. Isn't that interesting? The declared intention to avoid a creator carrying the corresponding religious obligation to obey him, the secular humanist has developed a new faith rooted in a false gospel of evolutionary humanism. What is evolutionary humanism anyway? Well, evolution is the foundation of humanism. Are you listening? So in denying a creator God... Man is exalted above the Creator and beholden to no one but himself. Therefore, man, in effect, becomes God. So when people acting under the humanistic belligerence toward the very concept of a Creator gather together or collectivize themselves in their conviction through democracy, they feel empowered to enforce that conviction by whatever means necessary upon the shrinking remnant of true Christian believers who don't share their views. And that enforcement begins with, well, education, and will end with extermination, as the scripture makes very clear right there in Revelation 13 and 14. So what we're looking at is something that is at war with God himself. It is the elevation of humankind over his creator. Humanism. Now, you could say it's a new gospel for a new age. Interestingly, the American Humanist Association, formed by John Dewey and others in 1933, The Humanist Magazine and the Humanist Manifesto all appeared about the very same time as the natural outflow and supportive infrastructure for Darwinism. Isn't that interesting? So among the very first tenets of the Humanist Manifesto was this. We believe that the universe was not created. It evolved. The second tenet in the Humanist Manifesto is... We believe that man is not created and man evolved. That reduces mankind to nothing but an advanced animal 
with no obligation to restrain his passions or proclivities. It, it, it also replaces the gospel of salvation from sin with a new alternative gospel of survival of the fittest. So it's all about me. And it's all about my happiness. So the pursuit of happiness then replaces the pursuit of holiness. Yet the Bible says that without holiness, no man will see the Lord. But the new gospel says that without happiness, you're not going to be self-fulfilled. Notice how this works. It is very seductive. So the hope of eternal salvation in Christ for those who by grace through faith repent and obey him is now for the humanist replaced by the hope of unfettered selfish pursuit to be a survivor among the dog-eat-dog world where only the most cunning and crafty are, shall we say, saved until all hope is lost in death. So should it come as a surprise that John Dewey was one of the leading founders of the American Humanist Society and also became known as the father of American public education. Should it also be surprising to us that the humanistic leaders of America's public school system have methodically and, shall we say, evangelistically sought to strip from the mind and memory of our students all vestiges of the Christian faith? And since God has no grandchildren, we're now witnessing a generation of youth throughout the entire Western world who are, unfortunately, without hope. They're worshiping not at the altar of a Savior, but at the altar of a fleeting survival of the fittest. An entire generation has been seduced to a false gospel with a false Savior and a false hope through a false spirit. And it's been called a new gospel for a new age. Wow. Do you see how this works? And I think most Christians are not really totally aware of how deep this has woven itself, this spirit of the end times. The perilous times are more perilous than we even realized. It's as if the serpent himself has slithered in and wound his way into the very innermost being of we the people, even of Christians. Does this sound dangerous to you? Does this sound like you and I need to be very, very careful? In fact, we need to uh, open up our hearts and our minds to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what Jesus told us to do in the first place, not to seek happiness, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, to seek holiness. And if we would just do that, we might just very well be truly happy. But if we seek first happiness, we become neither happy nor holy. Isn't that kind of where we are? Yet we pursue happiness at all costs. The spirit of the perilous times. Now, I want to uh, suggest to you that you might want to get a copy of my book, Seduction of the Saints. Seduction of the Saints. How to Stay Pure 
in a world of deception. It's a very unusual book. I'm not aware of anything like it. Uh, A number of folk who have gotten and read the book have said, you know what, it's the most important book that I have other than the Bible. So I asked them, why? Why do you say that? He said, because it applies the Bible so clearly that it makes it come alive. It's so real, so relevant. So if you're looking for relevance, here it is. Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. It is a $18 book, yours for $15, on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. It's not on Amazon. No, it's not on Amazon. Go to our website, saveus.org. Get it there or call us 1-800-SAVE-USA or write to us at Save America Ministries. Seduction of the Saints. We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a for pastors only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Also on Chuck's website, listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast. Listen to the archives. Maybe you missed a program. Check it out at saveus.org. Also, there are some great resources, hospitality information, also information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, newsletters, articles, prophecy, prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org. The perilous times that are coming. We're looking today at the spirit of the last days, the perilous times. And we're not just in the last days, as we described uh, in the first segment of the program here today. We're in the latter portion of the last days, called the latter days. Mm. In other words, what we're saying here today is showing that we're nearing the culmination of everything that the Bible talked about, warned about, uh, that Jesus warned about, the Apostle Paul warned about, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, and so on, that they all warned about. We're in that time. So you can understand then why this might be one of the most relevant things we could possibly talk about. It's more relevant, friends, even than China or Russia More relevant, certainly, the Olympics. It's more relevant than the budget. It's more relevant than who runs for president or who doesn't. Because it is these things that will determine your trajectory toward eternity, one way or the other. That's why it's so important. If we are enveloped by perilous times and succumb to them, we actually have apostatized for the faith. So we need to know about these things. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is not bliss. Now, we were talking about humanism, and at the root, it's a socialism that inevitably spawns, well, a a utopian offspring 
that promises to bring a kind of salvation to the world by providing an alternative to the second great commandment, which Jesus said was to love our neighbors ourselves. So it turns man into the primary focus of a new gospel. It's all about man. It's not about God. It's not about Jesus. It's about man. We, mankind, become the penultimate view or object of humanism. Now, that has a lot of deceptive elements in it. It spins into a counterfeit garment of loving yourself that doesn't biblically fit a true Christian believer. It's like Freudianism in its multiplied manifestations of popular psychology. It also is reflected in politicalisms like socialism, communism, fascism, even feminism. These are all part of the deceptive spirit of these latter days. It's interesting because um, the church historian Marty Martin, Martin Marty, characterized the three major thinkers of the 19th century as Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, and Sigmund Freud. He called them God killers. Freud was known as the father of psychoanalysis. And he wrote a letter back in 1918, said, why did none of the devout religious create psychoanalysis? Why did one have to wait for a completely godless Jew? Wow. Now, psychology, which I majored in, by the way, undergraduate, is known as the science of human behavior. But in truth, it's the study of the psyche, that is, the spirit, the study of the soul. But as we've discovered, science is not necessarily pure. In fact, a man's science is contrary to popular belief, largely defined and directed by preconceived beliefs and viewpoints, and, unfortunately, by the money that is poured out for his various projects, to which he feels he must conform. Well, the the world of psychology and psychoanalysis, rooted in this seedbed of Freudianism, is no different. So when a medical student, Freud came under the influence of Dr. Ernest Bruch. Bruch was an evolutionary psychologist. He was committed to Darwin's view of man. Darwin had removed man from the kingdom of God, putting him in the animal kingdom. So Bruce's philosophy of science didn't leave any room for spiritual, for the design or for ultimate purposes. All that could be either seen or experienced was merely a matter in motion. So Freud idolized Bruce, and from Bruce, Freud adapted a godless theology of human life and behavior. It was a natural progression of Darwinian naturalism. So man had no free will. All of his thoughts were determined. Therefore, human behavior had no moral quality. This is how these things have taken over, friends. So, at the root, then, Freudianism, in its common modern expression of, of psychology and 
therapy and so on, it turned into the human potential movement. And is an effort to explain man's behavior and correct his misbehavior by alternative means from those clearly expressed in God's word. So having fundamentally rejected God as creator, the Bible then carries no authoritative weight. It's being relegated to nothing more than antiquated ideas expressed by unenlightened primitive man. So psychology then comes to man's rescue. Guilt from sin no longer required confession of sin and repentance, but denial and massive injections of self-esteem. So you'll remember when uh, a very famous evangelical, Dr. Robert Schuler of the Crystal Cathedral, came out and boldly stated, it is abuse to say that man is a sinner. He said, no, man doesn't need to be told he's a sinner. He just needs more self-esteem. Dr. Robert Schuler had actually denied the gospel while purporting to be one of the evangelical leaders, gathering vast numbers of evangelical pastors to his crystal cathedral to be told how to minister to people once a year. Unbelievable. So, rather than probing the probing search of the heart by God's Holy Spirit, it would convict the soul through, shall we say, the divine surgery of the Word of God, leading to the cleansing of eternal guilt by the sacrificial blood of Christ, psychology then offered the couch, shifting salvation from forgiveness by God to forgiveness by oneself. I don't know if you're old enough or you remember that back in the 1970s or 80s, a bumper sticker came out. Here's what it said. Screw guilt. It was a bumper sticker theology that expressed the effects of humanism and Freudianism, psychology. So the pursuit of happiness supplanted the pursuit of holiness. And it took over. This It was a spiritual bait and switch that infiltrated, took over dominion over the church through the Western world, from pulpit to pew, from the liberal to the evangelical, and it's just breathtaking to see how it happened. For good, for better or for ill, my wife and I have been there during this entire period of time to watch it happen in real time. From California to the East Coast, we watched it happen in real time in the broader body of Christ, among many denominations. From the traditional evangelical to the word faith movement to the charismatic movement and uh, around the clock, this has invaded this deceptive thinking the spirit of the last days, the perilous times that we are in. So, what has been the fallout or the end uh, expression of this for our times? Well, in all these theoretical expressions, the psychologists and psychotherapists were humanists. They were always man-centered rather than God-centered. 
You remember uh, a fellow by the name of B.F. Skinner? Everybody who studies psychology knows about B.F. Skinner. He wrote a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Here's what he said. The idea of human freedom is a myth. The myth of the inner man who is somehow independent of the controlling influences of his environment. Eric Fromm, another famous one, wrote about humanistic ethics, is based on the principle that only man himself can determine the criteria for virtue and sin, virtue and sin, and not some authority transcending him. Do you realize what these guys are saying? These were some of the famous, most famous names in the whole world and development of human psychology. They were atheists. You don't have to you don't have any control. You don't have to submit to the Bible. You don't have to submit to any other source. You are the ultimate criteria for virtue and sin. In other words, every man does that which is right in his own eyes and lives according to the mandate of his own feelings at any particular moment. Another one, Carl Rogers, boldly declared, experience is for me the highest authority. Neither the Bible nor prophets, neither Freud nor research, neither the revelations of God nor man can take precedence over my direct experience. Oh, once we enter the realm of the ultimate authority of my experience, we have now inaugurated our feelings as the final determiner of whatever we want to call faith. This is how it happened, friends. The shift from faith to the authority, the ultimate authority of our feelings. Experience. Now, if you think that we're off in left field here somehow, or this sounds a little too esoteric to you, let me tell you where this has gone. This actually has gone to the point where the, the papacy has embraced all of this kind of thinking, and it has become normative even by members from Fuller Seminary in California. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. Today we're looking at the spirit of the last days. Actually, now the spirit of the latter days of the last days. The Apostle Peter, uh, Paul called them perilous times. And we're tracing the trajectory 
of how these deceptive spirits have come forth to change everything in our thinking. Yes, even among our pastors. So, here's what happened. A problem still remained with regard to uh, humankind's sense of guilt. So man's guilt would not go away. Guilt presented a formidable problem for Darwinian evolutionists. So at what stage in the evolutionary process did man acquire this ability to feel guilt and why? And even more troublesome was man's ability to feel guilt transmitted to future generations and to reflect on one's own actions as bearing some degree of responsibility. Well, in response to that dilemma, Freud came up with his famous Oedipus complex. He proposed that a jealous male dominated primitive society, keeping women for his pleasure. And all of this in the, in the unfolding panoply of his godless imaginary mind, he came up with an explanation as to how guilt was developing. So in this way, Freud explained away the doctrine of original sin. We're not really sinful. We just have to be put in touch with our past memories and current feelings and be therapized out of them. That's right. We don't have time to go into the the depths of this, but we want to get to where this ultimately led. Enter the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Should we be surprised that just as psychotherapy in the world of psychology was gaining public acceptance that free love and unfettered sexual expression would explode onto the scene of our culture here in America? Freudianism paved the way. The id, as he called it, now was ruling. Feelings became Lord as faith bowed to our feelings. You remember a fellow by the name of Abraham Maslow, if you ever studied psychology. In discussing what he called self-actualization psychology, he said, We need a system of human values that we can believe in because they are true rather than because we're exhorted to believe and have faith. So that's exactly what we did. We divorced our faith from the Bible and began to believe in ourselves as the final arbiters through our feelings and experience, the final arbiters of truth. And that's when the divorce rate soared, cohabitation began to explode, abortion supported the free love movement, as the theology of psychology became America's normative belief system. So by the 1970s, this so-called theology of psychology had invaded our churches from coast to coast. Jesus was still proclaimed as Savior, but self had become king. And feelings increasingly trumped faith and truth. Then came the encounter movement. I had to experience that as a public school teacher in California. 
we were told that we had to go to separate classes on the weekends in order to be retrained as to how to communicate and talk through our feelings. We could no longer talk about truth or actual things, but we could only talk about I feel, I feel, I feel. That made its way throughout the entire church and through the 1970s became what I describe as the God is love movement in the church. So the God of righteousness and truth and holiness was superseded by the God of love and forgiveness and kindness. That's where it happened. So it was by the late 1980s, this syncretism of faith and feelings was virtually complete. Then came the grace movement of the 1990s. This may seem surprising to you, but listen carefully. The grace movement of the 1990s wrapped all of this with a bow and presented it to the generation that may well see the long-awaited second coming. Grace now was redefined from God's favor, enabling us to obey his will, to God's winking at sin and overlooking our increasingly carnal ways. So with feelings now reigning supreme, the works of the flesh became flush, and for all practical purposes, hell froze over. The promise of happiness replaced the preaching of holiness. And guess what? Now we're neither happy nor holy. So it was a marriage of convenience It provided nothing but carnage wrapped in robes of false compassion. So the church prostituted her soul for the spiritually salacious offerings of a false salvation in order to savor Satan's tantalizing offer that we should be as gods. A fellow by the name of Paul Vitz, who was associate professor of psychology at New York's University, Uh, wrote a book called Psychology as Religion. Here's what he said. Psychology has become a religion, a secular cult of the self. More specifically, contemporary psychology is a form of secular humanism based on the rejection of God and the worship of self. Oh. Now, wait a minute. What did the Apostle Paul say in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about the perilous times that would come? The very first thing he said was, men should be lovers of their own selves. Where do you think the term selfie came from? The progressive iteration of the lordship and worship of self. It didn't just happen, friends. This is the trajectory of the spirit of the perilous times, the last days that have taken over our minds and our hearts and our wills, even in our churches. So the God is love movement distorted the character of God's self-revelation, ignored his truth, justice, and judgment, but overemphasized his love and mercy. So the church was seduced by psychology's man-centered theology that sacrificed moral purity before God to curry favor with man. 
Christ had become, in all effect, our mascot, and the culture had become our master. So, the promise of happiness replaced the preaching of holiness in our churches. A marriage of convenience had occurred. When I was in Christian college, after three years of study in psychology, there was something that occurred in my spirit, and I realized something is not right here. I actually had intended to get a master's degree and become uh, a uh, clinical psychologist and so on. But in my final, by my, the end of my junior year, I said, you know what, something's wrong here. There's nothing of truth here as an anchor for the soul. And so I determined to go and study uh, at a junior college two classes that were more anchored in reality, and that was business law and accounting. I got an A in both of them. I hated the accounting class, but uh, the the business law kind of grabbed my attention, and after that, ultimately, years later, I went to law school and became a lawyer. As I look back on my study of psychology, I realized it was an important element in my understanding, my eventually understanding, so that I would be able to translate to God's people the very heart of what was actually taking place and wed it with what was taking place in the church so that we could understand that I, at least from a both experience and a truth standpoint, and understanding, having studied all of these things, could be able to reveal this in its uh, seductivity to God's people to avoid it, to run from it. Psychology is really an opposing faith. It, it's uh, underlying seeks to deliver a mortal blow to our own Christian faith. In fact, a psychiatrist once admitted, the human relations we now call psychotherapy are in fact matters of religion, and we mislabel them as therapeutic at great risk to our spiritual well-being. It's not merely a religion that pretends to be a science. It actually is a fake religion that seeks to destroy true religion. That came from a psychotherapist. Psychology is self-centered and man-centered. It exalts your feelings and emotions over your faith. It declares the lordship of the soul over our spirit. And as a result, resulted in the most amazing defining of deviancy down in every single aspect of our culture in America. The Bible and, and psychology are fundamentally incompatible. Let me give you a set of contrasts. Psychology is man-centered. The Bible is God-centered. Psychology is self-centered. The Bible is God and other-centered. Psychology says man's basic need is to be happy. 
The Bible declares man's basic need is to be holy. Psychology says man's primary need is to be healed. The Bible says man's primary need is to be saved. Psychology says that the root of man's problem is his environment. The Bible says that the heart of man's problem is his heart. Psychology teaches that man is basically good. The Bible teaches man is basically sinful. Pretty clear, isn't it? So this selfishness that the Apostle Paul said would be the most characteristic thing of these perilous times has spread like a poison. It's like the Bible says that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump of your life, your family, your congregation, pastor, friends, your city, your nation, and in fact, the whole world. So let's talk about another ism very quickly, hedonism. Hedonism is an ancient belief system and and philosophy. It lies at the very heart of modern psychology. In fact, hedonism is also embraced by humanism. And just very simply, hedonism is the unfettered pursuit of happiness as man's highest goal, his life objective. Even before Jesus, a Greek philosopher, Epicurus, defined philosophy as the act of making life happy with pleasure as the highest and only good. Doesn't that describe the message of modern psychology? And even supposedly in our churches. Hedonism is now the reigning philosophy of American life and of Western civilization. God has been replaced by me. Hmm. That's exactly what Satan promised Adam and Eve. You shall be as gods. Need we say more? You might want to seriously consider getting a copy of my book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. It's an $18 book, yours for $15 on our website, saveus.org. No, it's not on Amazon. It's on our website, saveus.org. Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. Saveus.org. Call us, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us at Save America Ministries at $5 for Post to Chanley. And become a partner, friends. We're preparing the way of the Lord for history's final hour. Yes, even today. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.